Hey there, we're jumping in here to talk to you about the Dirt on Flowers Insiders. We've been listening to your feedback and we're excited to announce that starting in July, you will be able to join the Insiders at any time, so we no longer have limited enrollment days. Not only will this simplify joining the Insiders, but you'll now have access to our growing content library that includes everything that we've provided since we started the Insiders. So now there's no rush to consume that month's extras and it gives you the freedom to grow at your own pace. So if you're just tuning in with us, here's what's included. You'll get video recordings, additional audio podcasts, extras with our special guests, templates, downloads, and more. A community Facebook group plus a member directory that will allow you to connect with like-minded and new flower friends all across the country. You will have a forum to ask questions and share your wins. Monthly live Q&A to allow you to get your questions answered and early access to our ValueTuber sales. The Insiders allows you to move the needle in your business and dive deeper alongside us for only $20 a month. You guys, literally that's the cost of selling one bouquet a month. So if you're loving the podcast and you want to dig deeper with us, head over to thedirtonflowers.com forward slash insider to join. We can't wait to guide and encourage you as you take your business to new levels. We can't wait to see you on the inside. I'm Lindsay with Wild Root Flower Company. And I'm Shannon from Bloom Hill Farm. Over the last six years, we've leaned on each other as we grew our farms into the profitable six-figure farms they are today. We want you to join us each week as we have real, honest conversations about life and business. And we promise you'll leave feeling inspired and your farming toolbox will be filled with actionable strategies you can implement at any stage in your business. Learn from our mistakes as we talk business, marketing, and growing techniques to help you create the farm of your dreams. So let's roll up our sleeves and get the dirt on flowers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dirt on Flowers. What a weird spring. I'm like, Ugh. I'm actually kind of sad. I, I mean, I drove up the driveway this morning and my freaking lilacs are blooming. Mm-hmm. And normally I have them for Mother's Day. So I'm like, yeah. now I really don't have any. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, no. I just, I just walked out to the tunnel and, mm-hmm. you know, our ranunculus kind of saved us because of our tulips. Like yes. tulip gate, you know, but now they're not gonna be blooming for Mother's Day. Like oh I am positive, so I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna have. Like I just yeah. and we had all these other pop ups, and I'm like, okay, pivot. The only thing we, we'll just fill our CSA subscriptions, and yes. what we have, we have. It's yeah. just been such a weird spring. It has. I mean, I tore down the uh, the tulip beds, mm-hmm. and you want to talk about depressing is tilling in all those bulbs that didn't bloom. <laughs> Like, I just felt like I was just tilling in, like, dollar bills. Yeah. It was awful. Oh. I know. I'm ready for spring to be done. I mean. Oh, God. Okay. We're moving on. Need to. Yes. Be harvesting sunflowers before we know it. You look tan, too. (laughs) Do I? Yeah. I mean, I've been out. We're we're getting some sunshine now, so that's good. So, yeah, I got my tan going on now. Farmer's tan. Okay. Yes. My Crocs tan on my feet. Yeah. And <laughs> my Apple Watch tan. Yeah. I have a Chaco's tan. That's yeah. my, my foot my foot line. As much as my ginger ass can tan. So yes. <laughs> get Reddens your sunscreen on, bit. girl. Oh yes. BF seventy, baby. You know it. Gosh. Oh. Yeah. We have a really fun guest today. And I know because I mean, we get a lot of questions and comments and we actually my Judd and I, Judd Ice and I did a little live in the Dirt on Flowers Facebook group for our insiders last night. And so many amazing questions about cover cropping. And like Judd and I, we just like scratched the surface. So I think if you are interested in understanding cover crop, the benefits, how to select who, who when, why, all of it, then you guys are really going to love today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. So today, and I have to tell the story about kind of how I met this company. And Al, welcome to the podcast. We'll yes, welcome you welcome. in now. Thank so. you for having me. Yeah. This is Al. And I don't know how to say your last name. Isn't that Temechko. terrible? I know. It's a mouthful. Temechko. Say it again. Temechko. Temechko. Okay. Good. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. And Al's with Vitalize Seed. And if you have followed my page at all, you've probably seen me shout them out because that's what I use for my cover crop now. And so how I found your company is I don't even know who the person is. Somebody, some food plot person, deer hunter messaged me and said, hey, do you know this company? 
you should check them out. And so I looked them up and then um, I inquired about it. And then that's how I connected with Greg, one of the guys that the, he's a, he sells for you, right? Is yes. that? Yeah. 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 So I connected with him and he came and chatted with me and we talked all about like soil health and how I could use something that you guys, your, your cover crop on my farm. And I've been using it now for two years and I love it. You could literally eat the seed. It looks like you can eat it. It looks like trail mix. <laughs> like it's the best seed ever. Yeah, you need to have you. like a window display on your seat, I think, so people could actually see it, you know, like because it just, man, it sells it. But I'm so glad to have you on here today to chat with us. So just tell us a little bit about Vitalize Seed, kind of how you, because I like your story. Just tell us kind of how you got started and what exactly you guys do. Absolutely. So um, again, thank you for having me. And yeah, Greg sells for us, but it would be wrong of me not to say he's also like one of my best friends. I mean, he came to my wedding, he came to my son's first yeah. birthday. So uh, we're, we're really, really good friends. And uh, he helps me plant every year when it comes to time to put in uh, seeds in the ground. So, uh, but my story really goes back about 10 years ago. We had purchased a recreational property in uh, Southeastern Ohio. I had grew, grown up in a farming community in Northeastern Ohio that is kind of suburban sprawl and is, is far less uh, tractors than, than uh, cars going down the road anymore. But, um, you know, growing up, I was always very interested in agriculture. Um, my grandpa was a, a coal miner and grew up in uh, Appalachia. So I always had really tight ties to Southeastern Ohio. He actually was from uh, Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, with that being kind of in my, in my blood, you know, gardening is huge, right? Like he always had like a ton of tomato plants and, and stuff. And I always had a huge desire to grow things. So mm -hmm. we had this recreational property and I started kind of traditionally doing deer food plots, which there's a lot of similarities between that and cover crops. And I would, you know, plant soybeans or whatever it might be. And I don't know, it was about six, seven years ago, I did soil samples and I looked at the fertilizer bill and it was going to be like $2,000 just for spring planting for deer food plots. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is crazy. You know, like I can't, you know, I can't do this. And I was, uh, I've always been somebody who likes to learn. So I'm like, you know what? I'm diving in. There's got to be a way I can use plants to help write this situation. And that's kind of what I started diving into. And uh, I started just kind of ignoring a lot of the things on the internet, if you will, because people say, oh, you can't do that. Have to have perfect seed to soil contact. Or mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to try it. And sure mm -hmm. enough, I started to see certain things working. And I, I had a lot of failures as well. And as I learned more, I started writing like, Facebook, like little Facebook blogs. There was a couple outdoor forums. Uh, Quality Deer Management Association used to have a forum. They no longer have that anymore, but there were some really bright guys who I learned a lot from there. And I started writing these blogs and I had all these people writing to me going, man, I'd love to kind of buy your seed mix. I, I don't understand how these all work together. Mm -hmm. And one thing came after another. And uh, a couple of years ago, you know, I met with my buddy who owns the Habitat podcast. And I'm like, hey, do you have a seed sponsor? He's like, no, not anymore. Things fell through. And I'm like, well, if we can make this work, would you be interested in, in partnering to, to form this company and really kind of step outside of like the deer food plot world? And I didn't want to name the company, you know, Big Buck Seed, right? I wanted mm -hmm. to focus on soil health and try to focus on, you know, recreational properties. We've had people who are trying to restore horse pastures. They're like, we want mm -hmm. to use your mixes for five years just to get the soil healthier before going back into uh, a browsable or grazable species, maybe a fescue or something like that for horses or cattle. We've worked with row crop farmers. Then obviously we worked with a bunch of people last year uh, after a couple of Lindsay's posts that, uh, that ordered for their cover cropping last fall, um, you know, New York state and all over the place that mm -hmm. it ordered. And that's really where my passion lies is, is understanding the soil health. So we started the company and it's been, I think our goal was like, hey, let's see if we get five distributors, you know, the uh, first year or year and a half. And I think we're up to like 22 distributors throughout. That's the awesome. Oh, yeah. It's That's been so cool. So much fun. And it makes it fun because I get to meet people like you guys and um, other, you know, full-time farmers, the guy who has a half acre and, that's what makes it a lot of fun is every situation is different and we get to try to help people out. Yeah. I love too that you're just such an inquisitive personality that you just take that on. You're like, I'm, I can figure this out. Like that's a true like entrepreneur right there because, <laughs> you know, you can, you just dive in and you want to figure it out. And now you have a successful company, you know, based off of, based off of that um, side of your personality, which is so cool. I love that. And so talk, talk a little bit about how, 
because you you said it's mostly with deer, like you started with deer food plots, which is what your curiosity started with. And so talk a little bit about like how that application, and I can speak to it on my side, but like how that application would work for, you know, on a small scale farm for what you're doing. So, yeah. So really, although whitetails were my end focus or kind of fall time focus, which is when deer season coincides, you know, most of the time in most parts of the, the whitetails range, they don't need a, a ton of supplemental food in the spring. So my main focus for spring plantings was what could I plant that's going to help solubilize nutrients in the soil profile, make them available, right? What, what mm-hmm. plants can I plant to make nutrients available that are tied up in the soil profile that are then going to become available relatively rapidly for my fall planting? which in Ohio is typically around end of July to September 1st, depending on the grower's goal. So for me, I'm like, okay, my fall planting is probably going to be a lot of things like turnips, rye grain, triticale, winter wheat, radish, and other brassicas, which turnips fall in that brassica family. Well, those are plants that love nitrogen. So kind of the traditional or conventional method for that is if you're planting grain, just dump the nitrogen to it. Well, we know that there's negative side effects to that, right? Um, We can look up the nitrogen cycle. You can Google that and you can understand the processes in which nitrogen takes and what it can do to your soil. Um, And also using an overabundance of synthetic fertilizers can have negative impacts on our microbiology. So I wanted to take a step back and go, okay, what plant species can I use? And it just so happened that a lot of the plant species in my spring mix happen to be really browsable for, for wildlife, but also really good for, for honeybees and other pollinators, right? Mm-hmm. So we have sunflowers, we have sorghums, and then we have a ton of legumes, right? Like sun hemp and soybeans and actually a couple of different types of soybeans and lab lab. In our fall mix, we use hairy vetch, but there's all those different types of varieties that are fixing atmospheric nitrogen. Right. And there's some outrage. I forget the numbers, 32 tons per acre of atmospheric nitrogen per acre that's available. And we just need to use biology to convert that. Um, So that's really where it started. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of fine tuning. And as I learned more from a lot of really, really intelligent people and read every book I possibly could get my hands on, Mm -hmm. I was able to further, you know, realize, okay, how does the spring mix feed the fall mix? And then how, you know, how does that fall mix then get broken down by the spring mix the next year. So really trying to make some synergies to that program. Yeah, that's pretty cool because that's what we're actually – so I just bought some seed off of Greg last weekend and we are tilling – so we're expanding our lower field and that's what we're doing. We're actually going to keep vitalized seed the entire year. So we're doing nitro boost this spring and then carbon load for the fall. And so we will just till into – so that whole – we'll have a whole entire year worth of that program in that new field. Cause I knew that we want to move our dahlia area down here and it really needs some work on the soil. And I have been amazed at the difference in just having, when we put carbon load down, which is their fall blend, which we're going to talk about this, but in, I cover cropped, it would have been August of last year. It came in amazing, which when I showed those videos is probably why people were calling. They're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and it, it just, that is a loamier soil. It's not clay. It's, you know, a heavier, thicker soil than our sandy stuff up top. But man, it broke it down really, really well. Uh, I was very, very, very impressed with it. So I just have to speak to that, that it's not only trail mix, but it's great for your soil too. So. Yeah. Well, th- well, thank you for the testimonial there. And, and yeah. you know, the nutrients still have to be there. And, and that's where, you know, we really focus on reducing synthetic inputs. But that's where I really start tell people to start like with a soil test because that's when you can really get an understanding of like what is that baseline starting point and and what do I need and then you can really fine tune based on that grower's goals so if somebody's like I absolutely do not want to use triple 13 from rural king or tractor supply you know because they want to be fully organic and they only want to use organic approved things. well that's okay but we have to come up with a plan for that so does that mean we're going to be fully applying nutrients are we going to be doing it you know in the pivot or are we going to be doing a drip irrigation or, or how is that it can be say, as simple as a backpack sprayer you know you don't need an exorbitant amount of equipment but what you do need is that baseline starting point so you can come up with that plan and cover crops like ours fit into that that mix, right? And uh, and they help to kind of optimize getting those nutrients available that are already in the soil through biology. Mm-hmm. 
I, I really, I liked when you said that when you got started, you were just, you, the internet was like, you stopped listening to what was out there on the internet sometimes. And we are always encouraging all of our newbies to get out there and just go do it instead of, and so I think like we, Lindsay and I are always saying that flower farming these days can be like a little overcomplicated and you could like, it's analysis paralysis, like research yourself to death, do all of those things. So, and I know... Uh, a lot of our newbies are just feeling like so inundated with information. So for them, I feel like cover cropping might be a very, feel very overwhelming and complex. So because we have so many newbies listening who are just starting their farm, where do you suggest that they start, start if they're interested in cover cropping? Like what would be like step one for them? It's a really great question. I think if I had to tell you step one, I would focus, you know, on soil health for your tip, your typical money crop, right? Your cash crop. So in this case, flowers, you've taken your soil test, you have your plan implemented for how you're going to maximize yield for that particular crop. Then you're going to have your, your dead period, if you will, likely going into the fall, like Lindsay was saying, just try the cover crop, right? Mm -hmm. We can get into the details of, okay, now, you know, the next spring, because in most areas, even like northern Michigan, most species, that, at least in our cover crop mix, are going to overwinter, which we want to have happen. We want when everything else is still dead or in dormancy, we want our fields to be solar panels and mm -hmm. photosynthetic capture because that feeds microbes mm -hmm. and that makes good things happen when microbes are getting fed. So when we have this occurring, coming right out of spring, then we can really fine tune the details for that grower. Let's say they're like, well, my next planting, I, I'm getting stuff in the ground in you know, April 1st in my region. Well, then you're going to have to come up with a plan to terminate that cover crop earlier than say, like me, my next planting is nitro boost. So I can let my rye get shoulder high, chest high. Like it doesn't really matter. I'm not overly concerned because my termination isn't going to be till May. So that it's, there's going to be variability there. But really the best thing to do is just get started. You know, there's a lot of information that can really overcomplicate people and they'll think like, well, what about seeding depth or what about this or what about that? Yeah. Yes. There are guys yes. and girls using cover crops now with drones or airplanes, like in Iowa, like where you have really large row crop agriculture and cover crops are growing like at a rapid rate. Wow. They're flying them on with an airplane. That's so amazing. You, you know, of course, you need rain. You need Mother Nature to still cooperate. I'm not trying to make it sound like these are magical seeds, but you can do a lot. Like they're balls of energy. I've spilled it on a gravel driveway and come mm -hmm. back. And I'm like, oh, that's a huge turnip. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I think sometimes it, gets, it it would be different if we were talking about seed depth placement for row, you know, for mm -hmm. row crop corn in South Georgia in a really tough climate to grow that particular crop. But when you're talking about growing cover crops and most areas, like just get them out there mm -hmm. and you're going to learn year after year, timing, rainfall, do you irrigate them? Do you not want to irrigate them? And that's the best thing to do is just get started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If, if a new grower has a, a soil test results, is that something you guys work with them on to like read and understand that and then create a plan? Or I guess, how, how does that work for if a newbie were to reach out? Yeah, I look at a probably probably like a thousand soil tests a year. Yeah, uh, the one thing I about would to tell be a thousand and five hundred. Yeah, I <laughs> well, I really I love looking at them, whether people buy our products or not. Yeah. I love having a good discussion with people. Uh, most of the time, I just say, "Can can I call you?" Because it's just easier yeah. to kind of talk them through it. Mm -hmm. Again, the the one problem with soil tests, just like a lot of other things, like the internet or, or the overmarketization of of you know, the different industries that are interested in soil testing. It's like, you really want to get a soil test that's going to give you all of the data points that are, are needed to make the best suggestions. So a couple things I would look for, we work with Ward Labs. There's a lot of great labs around. I really like Ward. I've worked with their soil scientists there. They're just good people, but they'll give you organic matter, pH. They obviously give you your macro readings. They give you your nitrate at six inches, which that's kind of a cool reading because that's essentially like what nitrogen fertilizer is, right? So it tells you at your time of, or maybe you take them and say you take them in March, you know that at time of planting, oh, I got 30 pounds of N sitting at six inches of depth. Well, you don't need to then go put 30 pounds on immediately because you already have N sitting there, but maybe you put on 
10% of what your, your nitrogen recommendation was going to be, and then triple apply nitrogen later. Again, that depends on soil profile. Mm -hmm. It gives you your CEC. That's super critical and nobody knows what it is. So CEC is your cation exchange capacity, which is essentially how your soil holds nutrients. So cations are like calcium. Calcium is a two plus charge. Or just think of positive charged ions. So calcium, magnesium, potassium. If you have a very low CEC, that means you have a sandier soil type. If you have a very high CEC, it's more clay based. Why is that important? Well, because how we're planting and how we're applying nutrients is going to be very different in a sandy based soil than it is going to be in a clay based soil. So you really want to have that number. And then um, micros is nice, definitely in your position. If I was like focused on, hey, I'm trying to grow for yield and profitability, I would want my micros. I would want to see what is my zinc to phosphorus ratio. I'd be wanting to look at some of those things. And then lastly, and, and not last in importance, but just lastly that I'll mention is base saturations of your soil colloid, which is typically going to be expressed as calcium, magnesium, and potassium in a percentage. And that is a structural piece mm -hmm. uh, that is important for understanding, okay, do I have enough calcium? Do I have enough magnesium, et cetera? Yeah, I think we had uh, an episode with, uh, it's called, it was called Dirt, uh, Turn Your Dirt Into Soil with Marcus McCartney. It was episode 22. It was back in October. He's a OSU extension agent here and he is soil obsessed. I love calling it dirt because it just fires him up. It's like a curse word to him, right? So I have learned so much just from soil testing because it's honestly, it's overwhelming. I mean, I've, I have, I went to school for horticulture. I took soil sciences class, but to be honest, until I actually have an application you know, to really look at it and go like, this is what my soil structure looks like. I've had to have a lot of soil tests for me and every time, you know, for me to be able to understand it, I feel like every year I get a soil test, I learn something new. Just even, you know, can you speak to like some of the basic things that we should be looking at? Because, and I'll give you an example of what I'm asking is because like, I just learned that where, you know, having your pH right allows more nutrients to be accessed. Is that right? Right. So once your pH is balanced, then it opens up more micro and macronutrients within the soil to for your plants to kind of grab. So I guess speak to like, what are some of the basic things when we're looking at a soil test that we should have an understanding of? Yeah, absolutely. Good thing I have my folder of soil tests right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me let me just look to, to see, you know, some basic things as I just go through to make sure I don't misspeak is, OK, so, you know, number one thing I look at is pH. Where's my pH at? Because that's going to tell me then, do I need to lime or not? You know, and I listened to that episode, by the way, I thought it was great with Marcus. I oh, yeah. His, his takes on um, and explanations on different types of lime are really helpful. I won't go into that, but yeah. I think if anybody's interested, they should definitely go back because he brought up some really good points about lime sizing and such. The next thing I look at, honestly, okay, so if I look at pH and I have to look, I have to add lime. I'm then going to look at my CEC of the soil. So what kind of soil do I have? Is it sandy? Is it clay? Okay. And then after that, I'm going to look at my base saturations. The reason I look at my base saturations is you have two primary lime sources at the high level, at least. And that's going to be magnesium carbonate or calcium carbonate. And when you're adding those uh, calcium carbonate, it's typically going to be called high cal lime. So if I need both my magnesium and calcium to be increased based on my base saturations reading I'm and my pH needs raised, right? So we've checked the mm -hmm. box, the pH needs raised. I'm looking at my base. I'm going to use dolmite limestone or dolmitic limestone because now I'm adding my magnesium, my calcium, and I'm increasing pH. But there are instances, actually, uh, Lindsey Greg, Greg's farm is a good example of this where his pH needed raised, but he already had such high magnesium that adding more magnesium would actually have been detrimental to the soil. It would have made the soil tighter. Too much magnesium, it makes things very tight. Um, okay. So he wanted to go with a high cal line. Well, calcium adds porosity to the soil. So that's where, though, at the very beginning, that's what I would look at. pH, and then I would look at my base saturations. Now, those both are going to be, you know, as Marcus mentioned, that's a six to 12 to two year plan. Mm -hmm. you know, but if this is the first time you're pulling a soil sample, that's important because you, you got to start in order to get that two year yeah. going. You're not going to fix your base saturations. You're not going to fix your pH overnight. You know, after that, organic matter, I mean, it's important. Um, I, I don't put that much weight 
into it, um, you know, because it's a good metric for like water holding capacity and things like that. But there's also mm-hmm. some variability. The biggest thing I look for for organic matter is I don't want to see it changing huge sways either direction. Okay. See, I thought it was, I thought that one was like super important. It is, but it's the problem with organic matter is the fact that it's, it's somewhat hard to quantify exactly what you're getting out of it. There's a lot of metrics, like you can look it up and it'll say, oh, for every 1% of organic matter, you're going to get 10 to 20 pounds of nitrogen. When? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's highly variable depending on rainfall, depending on microbial activity, et cetera. So of course we want our organic matter to increase, but as a grower in your situation where you're trying to grow a crop for, for profit, you know, there's not a ton of quantifiable value, right? It's more of a qualitative metric. You can look at this and you can say, oh, good. My organic matter isn't, isn't eating itself, right? Or getting consumed by my microbes. I'm not mm-hmm. seeing drops. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've increased it half a percent or a percent over five or 10 years or whatever that might be. Good, good deal, right? But don't get yourself so caught up that if it drops a quarter percent, like something went wrong, it, it could be mm-hmm. variability and you had a lot of rainfall that year and high microbial activity, and maybe you needed a little bit more carbon source than was there. So you make mm-hmm. that adjustment from your cover crop perspective. Um, and then obviously after that, you know, you can start to look at, at the lab's recommendations. Uh, I don't, with, with soil tests, that would be like my high level, you know, where I would start. I mean, we could- okay. uh, probably three hour discussion on that, but like just high level, that's some of the things that I would probably focus on that I haven't touched on already. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I definitely manage my upper field and my lower field differently. And I've said this before, but I have sand up top. Like we don't even have to use tools to plant. Like it's just super, super sandy. And so I say it's like feeding an elephant, you know, even with like it drinks a ton of water and and compost. And that upper section is actually the whole reason I started looking into cover crop because I needed to change how I was looking at soil health as a whole because it honestly was – I was putting so much money in compost and I really wasn't seeing any changes in my soil you know, profile other than from an organic matter standpoint. I was just trying to beef it up because it was like there's nothing to it. It just looks like a sandbox. You know, which comes with its whole bag of with a, with a whole nother bag of issues. You know, staking and things blow over easily, higher water bill, da, 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 you know, all of that. So, but that's kind of what led me into 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 cover cropping as a whole. I've really had to shift my mindset for like what are all the benefits that cover cropping can offer, and that's kind of how I started to kind of dig into it a little bit. But well, that's interesting, Lindsay, because what you brought up too about you know altering pH and how is that important? One thing that I tell people is I I just was working with a grower probably two or three weeks ago on this and they had a ton of horse manure that had been composted and their interpretation of this is like, it's free. It's great. You know, this is, if it's free, it's good. Um, But there was no manure analysis. And about three days after talking with that gentleman, trying to really figure out like, well, why is he struggling to get, you know, growing the things that he should need and waiting on results. I actually had another gentleman who did a manure analysis, a compost analysis, and uh, a chicken manure uh, analysis. You know, and when you compare these things and really get a full analysis from a lab, you can see, wow, the pHs can be very high. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, your your Mm -hmm. nutrients can be highly variable. Chicken manure, very high in nitrogen. Horse manure, very low in nitrogen. So if you go on and put down or even compost, depending on how the, how it's composted. You go down and put down two tons per acre of compost. Yes, it might read high in organic matter, but it also might not have any nitrogen. So you actually can have nutrient tie-up in those particular plants because you have this organic matter to the point where it's holding nutrients, which is a great thing. But if you don't have any microbes that are cycling those nutrients within that soil profile, horse manure is a good example of this, right? I think everybody can picture it. It's super fibrous. So you have nutrients, but it takes forever to break them down. So if you're going to be applying that, it's very fibrous. Well, you need to probably apply like chicken manure with it or an end source or apply it where legumes have been or are going to be. That's a much better reasoning. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, just just something to keep in mind because one, if you're going to apply something to a field, you should really have an idea of get an, an analysis done. I apply wood ash to some of my fields that need pH adjustments and I want to have a higher wood ash typically has a higher calcium to magnesium ratio and plus a bunch of other trace elements in there. And we have wood burners. So I have a ton of wood ash. I get an analysis done. So I know exactly what 
you know, what is the pound per hundred, what is the pounds of calcium per hundred pounds of wood ash am I getting? Where are you getting that analysis done? Because I just, we we talked about it uh, in a previous episode. I, I think this one's going to come out a little bit later, but I lost a bunch of tulips this year. And one of the things that I'm still investigating and kind of trying to figure out what actually happened, but I lost like about 15 or 17,000. And I think compost is a piece of this puzzle. I think it was environmental and several other things. But when I looked to get an analysis done on this compost, um, it was about $100. Is that typical? Like, is that about what you're paying? And does Ward do that? That seems a little high. I think okay. Ward, I think Ward is probably, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I think they might be like 60 to 80 bucks. Okay. Yeah. I just, for a soil sample, it's much higher than it is for a soil sample. It was, I, when I first thought about sending it off, I'm like, gee, how much money have I lost in these stupid tulips? I don't want to spend any more <laughs> but I think I need to. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm to that point where I'm like, okay, I need the information to help me decide. Cause I, we used leaf compost on several beds and we used uh, uh, mushroom compost, which is composted horse manure basically, mm-hmm. when you boil it down with a fancy title on other beds. And so I think there's a there's an element to tulip growing that is very affected by pH. And so I think I need to get an analysis done on that. So I was just curious where you – so Ward Labs does do that if we're wanting to get compost off. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's good to know. I know from Lindsay and I working with like consulting with other farms and doing stuff, I, I know I hear it a lot. People equate on a very like basic level soil health. Like I think I have healthy soil because I spread manure on it each year yeah. or because I dump thousands of dollars worth of compost on it each year. Like that, that's their idea of soil health. But really like I just, I've so enjoyed listening to this because it is so, it's, so variable. There's so many components to consider. So I just think just finding like a guiding light, you know, somebody to completely trust is incredibly important to help you read and sort through all, all that stuff because it, it's not that linear. You know, we want things mm-hmm. to be simple and linear, but it sometimes it's just not. So this has been great. Yeah, and what, I mean, what might work for somebody or one soil type or one area from an amendment perspective might be detrimental to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so that's, that's the things that, you know, we want to keep in mind when, when, and if we're going to add amendments, it's like, take the time to just send in a sample. So you kind of know, like, yeah. what am I, what am I adding here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we say this all the time with farming, like it's different for every farm. That's what makes this everybody wants. We, we call it the easy button, but like every, we, we all want just like the, the answer and it, you're right. It's like every farm is different. Every compost is different. You can't just say my horse manure is, you know, the same as Jim's down the road, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like very true. It's just such a good reminder to like, we still have to do the work ourselves on each individual farm yeah. to figure out those pieces. So, well, and even like from a soil sampling perspective, I mark my fields on my phone with my, with, uh, I use Onyx maps, but there's other apps mm-hmm. out there with GPS. So like I'm taking the samples within like one acre grids, almost in the same GPS coordinate, they're as close as I can get within that app every year. Mm. I'm taking them every time at six inch depth with a soil probe. I mark my Mm -hmm. soil probe at six inches. I'm trying to take them the same time every year. So I try to take them around March to the first week of April, every single year. Um, Trying to stay consistent is going to give you much better results Mm -hmm. um, because you can imagine, I mean, that's why they call it soil versus dirt, right? It's alive. Things are moving. It's very fluid. And if you're taking them all different depths and all different times, um, and and sometimes you're removing the top layer of thatch and other times you're not, you're going to get highly variable results. Anything you can do to take soil samples um, as close to the same spot, same time, same depth as possible, it's going to help you out in the long run Um, So you're not kind of chasing this moving target. Yeah. I think also like maybe reframing the way we think about this and that that, like there's not like a singular destination at the end of this. Like, okay, we, we get to a certain point and like we have perfect soil and now we can just let it be. It like really does have to be this evolution and every year you're going to be overcoming different things and, and looking at your soil in different ways. And I think, you know, people want it to just like, okay, we got to this point and now this is the thing we do every single year. But yeah, it's not just like we just get to a spot and everything's good now. Mm-hmm. I wish, man. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> not how it works. 
now. <laughs> okay, Al. So we get a lot of questions all the time, and this is a very hot topic in the flower farming world about the tillers versus the no tillers. Um, you know, we get a ton, a ton of questions over on our, on our Instagram page about this. So if you're looking at cover cropping, I mean, what what do you think, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages to both? And just, just give us your professional opinion, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so it's a pretty hot topic in, in every, in every category, I think, you know, when people get really um, feisty. Yes. Yeah. yeah they feisty. get fired up about There's it. a right and wrong. <laughs> you know, and obviously in the total ideal world, if you never had to till and you had the equipment to know till to do it at, at a, you know, a large scale, right? That's awesome. I mean, it's, a, it's, there's, there's no arguing that. However, some people like to till and there are some benefits even to, to tilling, right? Depending on soil structure and stuff. So let's look at like, what are some negatives of tilling? Um, well, one of the things is fun, fungal disruption. So when you have fungal networks in your soil, often referred to as mycorrhizal fungi, is, you know, they, they go into the roots and then they have these expansive networks all through the soil. When you till, especially deep tillage, you're breaking those up and you're chopping them up. And it's very difficult for the fungi or fungi to really establish rapidly then thereafter because they've all been chopped up. Similarly, like with earthworms and, and things of that nature, your bacterial component uh, a lot of times can kind of ride the wave, if you will. Um, and it actually, in some cases, if you did a CO2 respiration test, you'd actually see an increase because of the oxygen um, sent into the soil, which is why you see a lot of uh, farmers, especially in, in southeastern Ohio and some of the heavier soils where they're doing corn on corn on corn, you'll see them have to use tillage because they need to add that oxygen to jumpstart those microbes to mm -hmm. break down that corn stalk, or they simply would have too much thatch, like we talked earlier, that nutrient tie up. So that's a benefit, right? Um, the other thing about tillage is, of course, there's erosion risk. So what I tell people is if you want to till, what are some of the benefits of it? Well, termination without having to use herbicide, you know, which obviously if you're on a really small scale, maybe you can use tarps and things of that nature. But if you're not on a small scale and you're trying to do an acre or two acres or 10 acres or 30 acres, like you ain't moving tarps around. So yeah. what's the next option? Well, herbicide. Well, I don't want to use herbicide. Okay, what's the next? So you, you kind of can go down this. Well, there's physical termination means. Well, like like a roller crimper maybe is something people have seen before. Well, that's not always a great option, especially in southeastern Ohio because of the terrain. You're not going to have good constant contact, so you're going to have a lot of patches that aren't totally terminated. So what's another option? Is tilling, right? That gives you a pretty clean termination. Of course, you can have some some weeds, but that can mostly be done by pick, hand picking after your crop is in. So that's a really nice benefit of tilling. The biggest thing is, again, not totally beat a dead horse, but it's the going back to your soil sample and understanding your terrain. So if you're on, uh, you have a low CEC soil, you're in an area that doesn't get a lot of rainfall or it gets a ton of rainfall, either end of the spectrum there isn't good. You're really going to want to avoid, and you have a low, uh, I might have said that, low CEC soil, so sandy soil. Tillage is going to be really detrimental, um, you know, more so than maybe in an area with a little bit heavier of a soil that's going to be able to withstand that from an erosion perspective. From a biological perspective, obviously, either way is, is going to somewhat be, you know, be disrupted. But there are things that we can do to help mitigate those risks. One being using fungal inoculants. There's tons of them out there. We partnered with a company called Tanio, but they have a mycorrhizal fungi inoculants and they also bacterial inoculants. So you can use those. Okay. You know, you disrupted some fungi. I'm going to be transplanting right away. I'm okay. So you spray it on. So after you till, like after I would till, like where I terminated the cover crop, to, then you would put that on. How would you test for that to know if I needed to use that? Or is that just a basic, like you should be using it? So the best test, if you want to do it, which these are somewhat expensive, it's called a PFLA test, which is phospholipid fatty acid test. And it's going to give you a, a reading of bacteria to fungal populations, ratios, et cetera. Okay. Um, in most cases, it's just like an insurance policy. It's okay. like, you know, yeah. I don't know what 55 bucks or something covers an acre. So it's not. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. That's um, not. And that's... you can put it on a seed. You can foliar spray it like on a new ground mm -hmm. soak, or you can do it at transplant time. So you can like do a root dip into it so that it's into the, the roots of the, the plant that you're planting. And then that's what I do with like all my tomatoes. What's it called? Like what's the product called? I'm curious about this. Cause... We call this um, Spectrum Plus Myco, which uh, is 
Tanio is the company that we've partnered with and it's on our website under natural amendments. Okay. Um, cool. And then we also have a micro product because a lot of soils are, are low on um, micro or on micros as well. Not to be yeah. confused with mycorrhizal fungi and that has positive bacteria um, and also micros, but uh, there's a lot of great companies out there. Those are, I just was pretty impressed with the Tanio team yeah. and partnered with them. But those are some things to keep in mind about tillage. Uh, obviously I like to tell people if you want to till, okay, but there's things that we can do. Like for example, any step towards the six soil health principles is a huge step in the right direction. So, okay, we, we reduced disturbance, we've reduced synthetic inputs, we've integrated livestock or maybe manure because we can't actually get livestock to graze. Like those are all positives, but then we want to say, okay, but we still like to till. Well, can we till at two inches instead of six? Hmm. Can we look at can we look at conservation tillage, right? So this has been around since the 1960s, which is essentially like when you look back over your shoulder on the tractor after running the tiller, do you see some of the thatch still kind of laying on top? Now you, it's dead, you've you've killed it, but you haven't just pulverized everything. Like, is that an option? Because that can be super beneficial. Some things in large scale agriculture that people might be familiar with or have seen is like vertical tillage um, or strip tilling. So those are some other things. Uh, and lastly, and I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with them is, you know, look at the Rodale Institute out of Pennsylvania. You know, they've been organic no-till um, since like the 1940s. It's an unbelievable statistic, but they actually do rotational tilling. And the reason is, is because of weed pressure. So they can't use herbicide, they're organic. So they use rotate. So they till, I don't know, every three years or something, depending mm-hmm. on the situation. So that's another really good option for people um, you know, if they do want to till, but there are, like I said, there's a lot of benefits to tilling, you know, and then with no tilling the, some of the negatives, I don't know if I hit on that, but some of the negatives can be, you know, nutrient tie up, right. You're not getting that really fast, rapid breakdown of nutrients. So if you don't really understand how your cover crop or even previous crop is going to influence that next crop, and then you're just trying to no till into it, a good, maybe a better thing to do is give an example so I've had people put down, you know, 200 or 300 pounds of rye per acre. They think the more, the better. Mm-hmm. Well, then they go to planting their cash crop into that. And they have this really thick layer of thatch. I'm sure you've all seen pictures. And, yeah. Oh, isn't this great? Not really. Because unless you're planning to put down a ton of nitrogen, all your, not all, but an exorbitant amount of nutrients are tied up into that. And that's why you'll see pictures of people who are anti-no-till. They'll be like, here's a no-tillers, you know, crop. And they'll show this like weak little you know, yeah. corn growing. <laughs> and, and it's kind of comical because that's what's happening. It's, it's not a well-balanced system. Um, so that's a real negative of, no, of no-tilling is if you don't understand how that's going to be influenced and termination of that particular crop, you can have, run into some issues. Yeah, I think it's like understanding both sides, right? Like there's mm-hmm. – Shannon and I both till the scale in which we – farm at, we both till. Now you talking about leaving like little bits and pieces of uh, like organic material mm-hmm. and seeing that stuff in the soil makes me think tilling in my my tulips wasn't that all that bad because <laughs> I could just <laughs> let it break down in the soil. But yeah, I think it's like anything, you know, there's not, not either side's not like, uh, we, we try to stay clear of the debate between no till and till, but I think that's we a do. good, yes. that's a good breakdown <laughs> to see like that there's advantages to both. Um, oh, but we both, both till. Yeah. yeah. yeah if you're going to till, I mean, there's a lot of things too, you can do to mitigate the risk. I think Marcus hit on this is, you know, once after tillage, try to get a living root in there like relatively soon, you know, mm-hmm. or as soon as possible, you know, and it's harder for, for somebody who's, you know, cash cropping, right. Cause yeah. maybe the timing isn't perfect yet, but if you can do those things, um, you know, you can use some fungal inoculants, you can use some bacterial inoculants, you know, those are all things that you can reduce depth of tillage. Um, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. And then just keep monitoring soil tests, right? Like if you're not seeing major erosion problems, you're not seeing um, organic matter, you know, going away. Those are things as well that that can be kind of indicative of, okay, you know, I'm not making a huge negative impact here. My yields are still where I want them to be. You know, maybe don't break what's, or don't fix what's not broken. Mm-hmm. One of the questions we've gotten before too is like a lot of the uh, people listening are using all of their space. Like I know this came up with a succession planting. So like everything that they're already using is is planted, all the space they have available. So, you know, I don't even know if you can speak to this, but, you know, timing wise, like where, 
you know, I know in Southeast Ohio, like for the carbon load that I use, I really like to get it in in August or September. And most places, um, you know, most people, they still have still have stuff in the ground, you know, mm-hmm. until October, sometimes even later, depending on the zone they're in. So, you know, do you have any is, like cover crops suggestions or anything to use, like if they're planting something later? Have you tested yours mm-hmm. the carbon load to go later? Have you ever done? So there's a couple options. One is if your your cash crop is mature enough that you don't think having a competitive crop growing is going to hinder its its growth, right? Yeah. So an example might be like soybeans. Maybe they're not dry enough to run a combine through them, but they're pretty much at the end of their life cycle. You know, row crop farmers, they might fly on their cover crop in, you know, Interesting. A, a month before they're harvested because mm-hmm. that combine is going to run up by where the bean pods are and that cover crop is going to be down by the roots. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing to think about. Again, as we before we started recording, kind of talking about the perception of like, you know, beauty of, of soil in our systems. We kind of picture everything like no weeds, anything. And I wouldn't really define a cover crop as a weed, but maybe that would be difficult. But that is one option. If you, you can, you're like, okay, it's time to get my cover crop in. You then go and harvest your, your other, um, your cash crop. And then you just leave everything to the cover crop to kind of have it. It'll break down those other roots, et cetera. If you're not going to do that and you want to just put a cover crop in later, obviously, depending on your geography, um, you'd probably be best to just try to find like rye grain somewhere, you know, and and put it down because your rye is going to germinate down to say, and and you would get that out of our mix. Um, I just think that we have so many other great species in there that Mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't do you that much good um, by, by putting it down that late, you would yeah. probably get some clovers and stuff coming back the next year that are annual clovers. So they're easier to terminate and stuff, but, um, you would likely not get the benefit of a lot of the brassicas, um, which you're paying for that. So I would hate yeah. somebody to, to mm-hmm. feel like, man, I paid for this and it wasn't, wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you went with that, I'd probably just go with rye grain. It can germinate down like 26, 28 degrees. Um, just mm-hmm. be careful on the rate that you're putting it down. Cause again, rye is an amazing crop. Um, but you, it's it's a high carbon to nitrogen ratio crop, which means it takes longer to break down. So you don't want to go crazy. You don't want to go 500 pounds to the acre. Too thick. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is make sure it's rye grain. A lot of times people will put rye grass down. Um, rye grass is good for golf courses and front lawns. You know, in mm-hmm. my opinion, I'm not. Um, some farmers will use it and it's fine in row crop agriculture. If you're going to be using herbicide for termination, I would imagine most of the people who listen to your show are not wanting to use herbicide. So yeah. Rye grain is much easier to terminate. I think it's faster growing. I, I just, I like it in general. It can be called winter rye, rye grain, annual rye, or cereal rye. It's all. Is that all the same? Literally, yes. is that all? Oh. I mean, I'm sure there's some, I'm sure, you know. Uh, okay. Cause yeah. I keep thinking, I, I thought cereal rye was something completely separate. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. That. I mean, but, I'm sure can... pathologists could tell you more about specifically. Yeah. In general, as far as cover crops go, those are all one and the same. Yeah. We planted, this is nothing really to do with what you're talking about, but we, we planted uh, buckwheat in the summer last year because we wanted something quick in this front bed that we did spring stuff on. Well, we got busy, we, me, and I didn't terminate it before it went to seed. So we name all of our field beds. Like, so I'll say like lower field, you pick tunnel one, tunnel two, tunnel three. And that front, it's just been called the front field. And we now call it the buckwheat field because there is literally <laughs> i knew it's just coming up like crazy when i tilled that in last year i was like oh this is there were like seeds flying i had safety glasses on i'm like this is a disaster <laughs> so like our direct seeded stuff is coming up and there's literally just like thousands of buckwheat coming up with it i'm like oh, i don't i don't God. know i haven't been nailing it otherwise i maybe i should just start growing buckwheat that's kind oh, of where yeah. i'm feeling yeah. yeah and the bee the bees love it so we put a small amount in both of our mixes mm. because it is a nice crop to get out of the ground kind of acting as a nurse crop um and it's also really good for bees they they do enjoy it but uh, well, that's like, good we've got like bees. anything too much of <laughs> oh man i saw it last year i was like this is gonna be trouble this yeah. is gonna be trouble in 23 and here we are it's like coming up with my bachelor's buttons and elizabeth that works for me she's like at least it's easy to pull i'm like yeah, that stuff germinates fast too it grows fast so it's the yeah, pink celosia of 2023 oh my god it is <laughs> it is it's my celosia hell from the it's the buckwheat and we're gonna be pulling it till the 
can till the end of the season. Oh my, oh my gosh, it grows so fast. I, t- I texted her today. I said, "Hey, turn the irrigation on in the buckwheat field because <laughs> got to get it going." But so I guess Al, if you want to talk about your carbon load, because I think by the time this episode comes out, we're going to be past the nitro boost for spring and like talk about maybe your carbon load product and how people can use it, how they can get it, uh, how they can find you, all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the carbon load product is our fall product. So, you know, our whole system, we, we call ourselves Vital IC Company and our whole system is a one-two system, you know, in the idea of using one, one cropping to feed the next and feed the soil. Um, so our carbon load is really unique in that it can be used in that system, but it can also be used by itself, like how Lindsay's using it to kind of feed the soil and prep the ground. Um, it's really diverse. So it's 16 different species with a balance of um, grains, legumes, broadleaves, and then, of course, your brassicas. Um, so your, your legumes in that mix are primarily going to be things like hairy vetch, uh, crimson clover, fixation balanza clover, which is a really, really nice clover for, for end fixation. Um, bursine, uh, frosty bursine clover. Um, we do have Austrian winter peas uh, in there, uh, which in some of the mild winters, Ohio, even in Ohio, we've been having, I mean, Austrian winter peas typically only, uh, well, not overwinter all the way, but I've been having overwinter in my garden mm-hmm. cover crop. Um, in a wildlife setting, typically the deer just, they just eat them before they can fully get there. And then of course your grains, which we use a diversity of grains in our, in our mix being uh, oats at the lowest percentage reason for that is oats typically don't overwinter in, in most geographies. So I, I'd only want, you know, a couple percent of oats in there. They kind of grow quickly at, like we said with the buckwheat, right? It's kind of that like nurse crop. Um, and then after that, we use uh, winter rye, we use triticale, and uh, we use winter wheat um, in our mix. And each one of those has slightly different, you know, root profiles, winter hardiness, uh, et cetera. So it gives you this ability to plant this mix and, you know, like right now in my garden, I think it's like thigh high and it's just all this green, lush, nutrient dense cover crop that will then be terminated in all my tomato. I have like 200, my wife thinks I'm nuts. I have like 200 tomatoes. <laughs> uh, uh, so, we don't oh, think you're uh, nuts. We yeah. have thousands of plants in our yeah. living rooms too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, those will be going in and, uh. And it'll just be a natural way for, for that to break down. So that's kind of our, our cover crop. I hope I hit everything there. I mean, you can learn more at vitalizedseed.com. Mm-hmm. Um, we do write, I write, try you to write them. Great blogs. Is that what you're going to hit on? Yeah. You write, I, you write great blogs. I try to write them pretty, you know, a lot of the stuff we touch on, understanding soil structure, understanding mm-hmm. a lot of those different things. It's like I said, we're not. We do a lot of business in the whitetail world, in the wildlife world. We've done stuff with, you know, ODNR um, and, and various other places, which is really cool, you know, for, from a wildlife perspective. But we're really focused on soil health and we're trying to help people get, you know, learn learn on that topic. So we try to put that information out there in blogs. So it's not just about, hey, what's a good place to hang a deer stand? Um, it's more focused on soil health. And that's at vitalizedseed.com. And the only other thing I would say about, you know, using the cover crop, or you, whether it's ours or, or somebody else's is, you know, as we talked about is understanding, you know, a cover crop is really a great tool, but it's only as good as we understand what's going to follow that cover crop or, you know, what is that cover crop mm-hmm. going to follow? Mm-hmm. So we want to keep that in mind because we don't want to have, you know, this, this major nutrient tie up. So if you're going to let your cover crop get six foot tall, you know, rye grain, it's getting ready to head out. That's okay. But then you probably are going to want to be applying a little bit of nitrogen at at planting with those tomatoes or or flowers or corn or whatever it is that you're Mm -hmm. putting down, right? Those are some things because that it's going to take some time to break that that down and make those plant nutrients available. But it definitely helps from an erosion, from a plant or nutrient solubility perspective, from a root structure perspective and soil structure perspective. If you haven't tried cover crops, hopefully I uh, convince you to give it a try. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I one thing too about your seed that I love is that not everything just germinates at once. Some of that stuff lays dormant in the soil. So from a from a food plot perspective where you're talking in the whitetail world, you know, if it's getting grazed, then other stuff is germinating and coming up. That's also great in the and for us too with our field. So, you know, we did we drop our our 
fence and we do let the deer graze in our fields, which is my dad purchases their product now. Okay. So my dad's house is up above our Ubic field. He texts me one night. He said, there's 14 deer down in that field. What's that guy's number? Which is how Al ended up talking to my dad. Um, so, you know, so, so I've hit it on both sides. I've got the, the deer food plot side and for the farming. So I can speak to it that it's just, it's a really, it is a great product. I've been super happy with it. So I'm grateful that you came on here to chat with us about it. And I also, if you're local to me, I do have seed on my farm that can be purchased. So there's a spot. And then also online now you do smaller quantities, right? Yeah, we do. We do. So, you know, our smallest quantity right now, I'm not sure what, what you have. Cause I'm sorry. I just can't. Remember. I have, no, I have half, I have half acre bags is what I have. And so that's so- the smallest we currently offer, um, Okay, which in all honesty, for most of your, for, for, for the cost of it, you probably would just be better off just buying a half acre anyways, because by the time I start breaking it smaller than that, yeah, yeah, I could sell it, but I think it's just, it's a good value. Mm-hmm. If you don't need it all, I tell people, keep it in a cool, dry place, do a germ test the next, next year. It should be plenty fine to use for, for your growers, especially as a cover crop application. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's beautiful seed, beautiful product, And I love how passionate the soil guys are. Oh, like they're always, love you guys it. are always so passionate about it. You didn't, you did not go to school for this. Is that right? No, I'm totally self-taught. I mean, I yeah, it's amazing. Say, um, there are so many great resources out there for anybody that does want to learn more. I mean, obviously YouTube, but uh, you know, hands-on agronomy is a good book. Uh, anything by Dr. William Albrecht. That's really in depth. So unless you're like, really want, like I read a whole book by him just based on calcium. And it's like all written from like 1940s to 50s. So unless you're like, but it can be Ray Archuleta, Google or YouTube Ray Archuleta. There's Dirt Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown, John Sticka, Soil Owner's Manual. These are just some things that you can dig into. Uh, Dr. Christine Jones has webinars on YouTube talking about mostly microbiology in the soil profile. She's Australian, just a brilliant woman. Um, I'd like to give credit to her. And then also... All of the people that you talk to, like I've talked to Ward Labs, Patrick probably hopes that I get out of the soil business because I asked him so many questions. Um, <laughs> it's, it's literally, it, there's so much out there to learn. And even the mm-hmm. most brilliant, like Shannon was saying earlier, like it's for, a forever journey. Like the most brilliant PhDs are like, it's a good question. Not sure we know that yet. Like mm-hmm. it's okay, like to not know these things and just to keep trying and testing. And, you know, I think I, I liked what Marcus said. He said, uh, you know, we don't guess, we test. And I think mm-hmm. that that is really a great slogan because it's really important to keep testing. You know, we do a lot of tissue testing. So I know what exactly is my cover crop assimilating from the soil. I'll leave you with this because I think this is really interesting. So I did tissue testing last year of our nitro boost on two fields on the farm that are about half a mile apart. Two different soil types. One's an old log landing from like when they did uh, clear cut timber before we had owned that part of the farm. And the other one's a, a pipeline easement. So totally different organic matter levels, everything. I did a soil t- or a tissue test, excuse me. And I extracted, they were similar within about a pound on each one of these nutrients. In nitrogen, 45 pounds to the acre. In phosphorus, around 20 to 22 pounds per acre. And potassium, about 85 pounds to the acre. Neither one of those fields has ever had fertilizer on it. So where did wow. the nutrients come from? Well, that was that was soil biology making that happen mm-hmm. and making it plant semiable. And then I was, of course, terminating that and putting that back into the soil in a form that now the next crop is going to be able to take up. So that's the power wow. of, uh, of cover cropping. Yeah, that's neat. It's uh, it definitely for us, it's money. You know, I think we've, I've shared this and I I think I said this in Marcus's episode or another episode, but you know, I did not soil test at all the things that we you're explaining that we should do in our UPIC field the year we opened it. And it cost me about a month worth of production. So the, I finally got smart at the end of the season. The plants were really small in comparison to the other fields that we had done the work soil work in. I'm sitting here staring at this, like I could be open, but my stuff is not ready yet. And it was because I didn't do soil testing. I, the pH, I needed the lime, the organic, you know, matter was really low. There was just so, so many things. So we did all the work. And even in just one season of doing that and soil testing, we opened a month earlier the next season. And it's like, you look at that in signs of, of dollars. I mean, it was literally four weeks earlier last year than it was the previous year. So yeah, very, very important for us to pay attention to this stuff because, you know, for what we do, it's it's money in our pockets. So yeah. Al, thank you so yeah, much thanks. for thank you. your time and your expertise and coming on here and 
and giving us some Thank you. No, thank you guys. It's so much fun. And I appreciate all the uh, support and uh, I love following along and working with you guys. So if you ever have questions, please reach out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You're about to get blown up, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. Oh, but well, Thank you guys uh, so much for listening in today. Uh, Show Vitalized Seed a little dirtbag love. Follow them over on Instagram. Be sure to check out their website. We'll link everything that he mentioned today down in the show notes. But your site is packed full of great information on soil health, cover crops, all that. You can check it out. If you guys have not left us a review, what are you waiting for, people? We would love it if you would just take a minute and drop us a note. Wherever you listen to your podcast, your review helps us get our podcast into other people's earbuds and we are so grateful for it so thank you so much for being here i know your minutes are precious and we appreciate you listening in every week it does really does keep us fueled for each episode so as always we will see you the same time same place next week 